Well, it certainly sounds that you all have got lots of things to be thankful for, and in sharing that in your group, that's exciting. I'm thankful that Jill and I got the opportunity to have a couple of weeks away, and we got to attend her dad's 90th birthday party, which was pretty exciting for us, and I'm grateful for the time off. I'm grateful for how well he's doing. The reality is, you know, you got a photo taken of him and me. He's healthier looking than me. It's just, <laughs> what does that say? But let me ask you this. But what about when faith isn't working out very well for you? What are your options then when it doesn't hold together? What do you do when things that you used to believe don't hold true anymore? What do you do when the rug is pulled right out from under you and you're stuck? Maybe a friend or a family member no longer follows Jesus. You've been praying for them for a long time. Nothing happens. Maybe there's a health concern. The news isn't good. Every time there's news, it's more bad news. And praying has accomplished very little or nothing. Maybe your finances are stretched to the max. And you've been a generous person all your life. You've given faithfully to God and to all sorts of things. And when you need Him, you're broke. Maybe somebody's hurt you terribly. They've traumatized you. And forgiveness doesn't come easy. Instead, you feel shame and rejection. Maybe tragedies hit your life. There is no explanation. Nothing really does it for you. And the promise of comfort and hope that we talk about doesn't feel like it's real. Maybe you see no reason to believe in God anymore. Never shows up. Never speaks to me. Maybe you have a story to tell. And I really need to start taking the time to listen. Surprisingly, perhaps shockingly even, we read about people struggling this way in our Bible. Even some of the people who were closest to Jesus. Even the greatest person mentioned in the stories of Jesus. Jesus himself said this, truly I tell you, among those born of women, no one has arisen greater than John the Baptist. John was Jesus' cousin. He's a famous preacher. He's a charismatic leader. People flocked. People's lives are being changed. They gathered around him. Anticipation was high. Some people even thought that this guy, John, down at the river in the wilderness, was like the prophet Elijah, all hairy and scary, and somehow he'd come back to life again. This guy's faith was on steroids. And then he got on the wrong side of the powers that be. He got on the wrong side of King Herod. And we read this, Herod had arrested John, bound him, and put him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been telling him, it's not lawful for you to have her. Though Herod wanted to put him to death, he feared the crowd because they regarded John as a prophet. When Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and she pleased Herod so much that he promised on oath to grant her whatever she might ask. And prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. 
The king was grieved, and yet, out of regard for his oaths and for the guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. The head was brought on a platter and given to the girl who brought it to her mother. John's disciples came, and they took the body and buried him. Then they went and told Jesus. There's no birthday cake in a plate at this party. Just a head and a platter. There's a phrase that's made it into our culture and our idiom. But before John is murdered so brutally, something else happens. It really begins with a misunderstanding. John's been arrested. We know that. We've read the story. He's in prison. It doesn't look good. And as we've just seen, it certainly doesn't end well. But while he's in prison, questions begin to arise. And it's understandable. You see, John the Baptist has been doing his job. God had sent him to warn Israel that the day of the Lord was coming. The day of the Lord would dawn upon them. And John understood this to be a time of judgment. And like the prophet Isaiah, who was fond of metaphors, John picked up on the image of an axe, that God was going to come and take an axe to the root of a tree and chop it down. John's words were these, even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I've got a dead mountain ash tree in our backyard that I need to remove. And right now with my wrist in a brace, that's certainly not going to happen by me doing it all by myself. Don't worry, I had about six people volunteer last night. So unless you want to be really quick off the mark, I think somebody will help me do it. But John, he didn't think he was strong enough either. He didn't think he was strong enough to wield this prophetic axe. The great tree of Israel, he said, would be felled by someone more powerful than I. The one who would come and baptize people in the consuming fire of God's spirit. John says this, there is one who is coming after me. He's more powerful than I, and I am not worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and will gather his wheat into the granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. It's not though that God was completely finished with his people, Israel. There was still some hope for this tree. If it is cut down, it could sprout again. And John, who's taken a lot of his ideas from the prophet Isaiah, would also have read these words in Isaiah 11. A shoot shall come out of the stump of Jesse. A branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest in him the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. But to make this happen, John could only do what he knew he was supposed to do. He preached repentance that lives needed to be changed. He offered and practiced water baptism down at the Jordan Riverside, and he was waiting for God. And so when Jesus shows up in the wilderness... Looking to be baptized, he knew that he didn't have to wait any longer for the coming one. Jesus was here. In fact, John hoped that Jesus would baptize him with this consuming fire of God's spirit because judgment begins with God's household first of all. And although John expected that, he knew he still had to play his part. And so he baptized Jesus in water and God baptized Jesus with his spirit. And then the heavenly voice confirmed everything that was going on when they heard it say, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. But God's judgment didn't come. At least not the way that John had expected it. 
Instead, Jesus sent, seemed heaven-bent on showing mercy and grace and forgiveness and love to everybody, no matter what. And rather than fasting like John's disciples, Jesus would go to parties. Instead of withdrawing to the desert and hiding away, Jesus went to town. And after a while, it became very obvious to everybody that Jesus and John took very different approaches to what, what was going to happen next. They both fervently were following God. They both fervently were longing for God to do something unique in their lifetime. They both were trying to serve the people round about them. And yet you couldn't find two more different people in what they were saying or what they were doing. We're a little familiar with the good cop, bad cop routine. We get that. But that's not entirely what's going on here. All the prophets beforehand, they would never have done that. They were just real clear about the judgment part so that everybody would understand what needed to happen. To them, Israel needed to sort things out. The king needed to sort his life out. The ordinary people needed to return to their faith in God. That's how the prophets saw it. That's how John the Baptist saw it. And so questions arise. We're reading our way through the prayers of Jesus in our Bible in the New Testament in our little series called When You Pray. Last weekend, we began with the Lord's Prayer. This weekend, we're in Matthew chapter 11 for a very short prayer of Jesus. And to get to the prayer, I want to read some of the story that happens first, beginning in verse 2 of chapter 11. When John heard in prison what the Messiah Jesus was doing, he sent words by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come, or are we to wait for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those with a skin disease are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news brought to him, and blessed is everyone, anyone who takes no offense at me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go into the wilderness to look at? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? Someone dressed in soft robes? Look, those who wear soft robes are in royal palaces. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Oh, yes. I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, no one has arisen greater than John the Baptist. Yet he is least in the kingdom of heaven, or the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence. And violent people take it by force, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John came. And if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. Let anyone with ears listen. And I'm thinking, what does this mean? And I'm thinking, they're thinking, what does this mean? But to what will I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We wailed and you didn't mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they can say he has a demon, the son of man, Jesus. He came eating and drinking, and they say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Are you the one? That's John's question. Because this isn't how John thought it was all going to go. 
And when you're about to die, especially if you're about to die for a cause or a person, there should be no doubts. John's entire life was focused on this moment. Everything he'd worked for, everything he had said, everything he'd done, everything that he was now suffering was all about this moment. And he's wondering, did I get it right? The significance of John's life and legacy depended upon who Jesus is. If Jesus had let him down, if Jesus turned out not to be the one, then John must have wondered, what do I do now? Did I get the wrong guy? Did I miss it? Did I get it wrong? Is there someone else? Will I live long enough to see the day when the one arrives? Is Jesus really him? Did I miss something? Of course, I could be projecting onto John our sort of 21st century identity anxieties about trying to figure things out. And yet, there must be some measure of concern there because he did send what called disciples, his friends and messengers, to ask Jesus the question, are you the one? John misunderstood Jesus. He's expecting fiery judgment and instead Jesus responds to his questioners, telling them about the blind receiving their sight and people who can't walk are leaving their wheelchairs behind. They're able to run and jump. People are getting their hearing restored. God is doing things. Good news is coming to poor people. You see, this was also the prophet Isaiah's style of ministry too. Isaiah says in chapter 61, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me, he sent me to proclaim good news. Good news and liberty to the captives, binding up the brokenhearted, release to the prisoners, proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a faint spirit. They'll be called, look at the tree again, oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, a display of his glory. Jesus is a whole lot less chopping down with a big axe and not quite so much frying tonight as John might have anticipated because the wonder of God's grace coming through Jesus was changing lives both now and forever. It's good news. This is Messiah type ministry. Just not what John had expected. He had never anticipated this. He had misunderstood how Jesus would change things. So let me ask you, is it possible today that in your life, perhaps your personal crisis, perhaps your questions or doubts or fears, your fading hope that you've misunderstood Jesus? Perhaps you don't think Jesus is going to encounter you in any particular way. He probably won't come with a get out of jail free card. John the Baptist certainly didn't get one. But could it be possible that today is a moment for an encounter with life-changing grace that comes from Jesus? A sustaining grace that can carry you when you feel nothing's working? An encounter with his presence as you face your own fear and pain and doubts? Maybe today could be a moment to become honest about your own misunderstandings and your struggles. And it wasn't only John, this person who was close to Jesus, the guy who really helped Jesus launch his ministry at the riverside. It wasn't just him that misunderstood him. It turns out just about everybody misunderstood what was going on. 
The towns where Jesus grew up, where he lived and worked, where he started preaching, the places where he spent most of his time, where he performed most of his miracles, where most of his 12 disciples that he chose, they all came from roundabout. It turns out the people just straight out rejected him. Jesus did everything there. Everybody knew everybody. They all knew who Jesus was. It's kind of like Saskatchewan. Everybody knows everybody and everybody else's business. And yet they missed it. Because it's easy to be in proximity to Jesus and miss what he's all about. Being born into a Christian family. Growing up, attending a church where people talk a lot about Jesus and do their best to follow him in his teaching. Living in a country perhaps where Christianity may not be a dominant thing, but it's very present, it's active, you can see what's going on. None of that really becomes a substitute for a life-changing encounter with Jesus where he spins our lives around and gives us so much more than we could ever begin to imagine. But not even Jesus himself. God in flesh walking around these towns and living with these people, performing all sorts of miracles. Not even Jesus himself could change their minds or help them see what God was doing? How often does God show up in your life and you miss him? How often does God really show up in your life and you miss him? Even worse, we begin to take other things for granted because God is so reliable. When things turn out the way they should, when life meets our expectations, when things are going really well, it's business as usual. (laughs) But when something goes wrong, Jesus remarked that John had wailed and sang a dirge, but nobody wanted to mourn or repent. They were more like, dude, it's party time. Quit with the funeral talks and chopping things down and setting on fire. Seriously. And then Jesus said, but he came playing a flute and playing a pipe, but nobody wanted to dance. They ended up saying, look, man, life is hard. Don't you get it? Stop being such an eternal optimist. Get with the program. We're under oppression from the Roman army. Look again at Matthew 11, verse 20. Then Jesus began to reproach the cities in which most of his deeds of power had been done because they would not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the deeds done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, on the day of judgment, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, really where Jesus lived, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you'll be brought down to Hades. For if the deeds of power done in you had been done in Sodom, It would have remained until this day, but I tell you that on the day of judgment, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom than for you. This is a whole lot more getting the ax out and chopping stuff down and fiery judgment. Do we reject Jesus because we don't understand him? Maybe it's because we only see him as our divine vending machine. Or a genie in a bottle ready to grant us three wishes when we give it a little rub. You could possibly imagine Jesus responding to people like that, maybe even people like us, by saying to hell with the lot of you. But it's not what's happened. What does happen? After all this misunderstanding by someone so close to Jesus, 
After rejection by his neighbors and friends, the people he grew up with, went to school with, worked with, played with, people who knew him so well, what does Jesus do? He prays. He prays and he thanks God. Look at verse 25. At that time, Jesus said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and you've revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. That's hardly my reaction when I'm struggling. I don't know about you. I'm usually more likely to pray, oh God, help. I'm good at asking God to help when life is difficult, whether it's relational or financial or medical. I'm real quick to do the oh God, help prayer. And on really difficult days, if I'm being honest with you, it's not that hard for me to pray for God to sort a few people out. Chop them down, Jesus, smoke them. Might include some of you, but don't take it personally. (laughs) But not Jesus. He prays, I thank you, Father. There's no sharp axes. There's no fire in the sky. There's no bolts of lightning, just gratitude. Well, maybe a little more than gratitude. Because even in the prayer of thankfulness, Jesus teaches us something. He teaches us about revelation. You see, none of us could ever really find God on our own. We go around looking sometimes, maybe. But we're never really going to find him. Not even the wise or the intelligent seem able to find God in that way. The mystery of God rescuing his world remains invisible or cloaked, hidden from people, from people who control and dominate and lead and succeed. They've got no real advantage here when it comes to trying to figure out God. The wise Maybe we could call them the learned judges or the lawyers who sort things out, the talking heads who define reality for us on TV and on our socials, the intelligent, the academics, the mystics who claim to have greater insight into life than the rest of us mere mortals, kings, (laughs) maybe they're the people that protect the central bank or the privilege to want to keep the tanks rolling so we keep the economy moving. The prophets, celebrity pastors and worship leaders, people like me who are far too fond of the sound of their own voice. The way of the kings and the prophets, the wise and the intelligent, it often goes like this. If you hustle, you'll get ahead. If you say what people want to hear, you'll gain a bigger audience. If you're clever with your donors, your budget will rise. If you publish more articles, you're going to succeed in your chosen field. If you practice harder at your soccer, maybe you'll get a scholarship and you'll get to university. Maybe if you had cosmetic surgery, you'd stay younger for longer. I have the ankles of a 20-year-old because of all this Botox. If you exercise enough, maybe you'll never die. If you drink the right beer, you'll have great friends. (laughs) If, 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 and Jesus says, infants get it better than all of us. God doesn't simply back winners. He isn't interested in all these ifs of performance. Our performance won't do it for God as though we could somehow impress him. Instead, he comes to us in our frailty and sits with us in our fear and patiently waits in our struggles and doubts. The Apostle Paul wrote to his friends and he said this, Consider your own call, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many of noble birth. 
But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, things that are not, to abolish the things that are, so that no one might boast in the presence of God. God chooses you. He chooses you. You don't have to be a self-starter. You don't need to be a rocket scientist. You don't have to be rich. You don't need to be a mystic. You don't need to be an influencer. You don't need to pretend that you've got it all together. God chooses you. In Jesus' little prayer here in Matthew 11, we discover that God, our Father, conceals and reveals by his own choice. People can't grasp who God is by their own understanding. They can't experience a relationship with God simply by their own effort or smarts. We can't really discern what Jesus is about or what God's kingdom really means all by ourselves unless God shows us. God conceals things from people who are far too proud for their own good, far too proud of their own wisdom, And he reveals things to those who with childlike faith come to him and wait and listen, eager to learn. Because when anybody responds to God, he's already revealed himself to them first. In fact, Jesus claims to be God's divine representative. He comes from the Father with the Father's power, displaying and revealing God's compassion, his heart of love and grace and forgiveness towards each one of us. He represents God, but he comes with God's claim upon human hearts. Look at verse 27. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Only God the Father fully understands Jesus, not John, his cousin, not the 12 disciples, not the wise, not even the little children filled with faith. The mystery of who Jesus is is hidden until somebody shows it to us, and only the Father truly knows the Son and can reveal him. But we read also that only Jesus fully knows the Father. We try to discover all things about God, and that's interesting. That nobody has known him with the intimacy of Jesus. It's reported, I don't know if it's true or not, that when Mahatma Gandhi was dying, one of his relatives asked him, you spent your life looking for God. Did you find him? And the great mystic and leader said, no, not yet. I'm still looking. Because Jesus shares our nature, he's just like us, (laughs) it makes it possible for him to show God to us. He shows us because he knows, he introduces us because he belongs. He is God the Son. Jesus is saying, if you want to know what God's like, look at me. If you want to know what God might say to you, ask me a question, I'll answer it. If you want to understand God's attitude toward you, does he care, does he know, is he there? Here I am. In fact, it's more than just an introduction or a revelation. What we see here is a rescue. Listen to Jesus' words in verses 28, 29. Come to me, all you who are weary and carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart. And you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to me. After making this astonishing claim that he's the only one who can reveal God to us, that he is the revelation of God because he is God, he gives this great invitation to people who know or feel at least that they need to be rescued somehow in life. And he says, come to me. Do you know who he's calling to come to me? He calls those kings and prophets, and the wise and the intelligent, who are weary and carrying heavy burdens and says, I'll give you rest. The burden of power, the burden of influence, the burden of wealth, the burden of ambition, the burden of loneliness, the burden of fatigue. Don't worry about it. Come to me. We don't have to exhaust ourselves trying to perform and measure up. Do you know who else Jesus calls? Ordinary people like you and me. Those of us with a friend or family member who no longer follow Jesus. And when we pray, Nothing really happens. And Jesus says, come. And those of us with health concerns, where news is rarely good, and praying isn't really working. And Jesus says, come. And those of us whose finances have buckled under the weight of all that has happened, despite being generous people, and we can't pay our bills. And he says, come. Those of us who have been badly hurt, wounded or traumatized by somebody else, we're making no progress. And Jesus says, come. Those of us who have experienced tragedy, there is no explanation. There's very little comfort. And Jesus says, come. Those of us who see no reason to believe in God anymore. Because he never shows up. Never speaks to me. And Jesus says, come. And those of us who are weary from carrying heavy burdens and loads, struggling our way through, and Jesus says, come to me. Jesus chooses you. He chooses you. With all of our doubts and all of our fears, even our failures and frustrations, our anxieties and concerns, he chooses you. Come to me, all you who are weary and carrying heavy burdens, and I'll give you rest. Thank God. And Father, today we do thank you. Thank you that it's not only the people at the top of the pile, the 1% that you reach out to. It's just ordinary people like us. And yeah, there are great days. It's easy for us to love you and follow you and believe in you. And honestly, there's lots of days that's just hard. Thank you. 
that in Jesus you're inviting us to come. And those of us who have been wounded and hurt by others and we read all this talk of forgiveness and we simply can't do it. Thank you that you call us to come. That you call me to come. And thank you that when life is complicated and there's more doubts than faith, you call me to come. And thank you when I eat so many pills a day half the time I don't feel I know what I'm doing anymore and it just never gets better that you call me to come and thank you in the brokenness of some of my relationships when life is hard you say come thank you this morning that as we sit here ordinary little people sometimes doubting sometimes afraid sometimes wondering you just come alongside us and say come I'll help we're so grateful for Jesus' invitation even when we don't often feel it or believe it but today with the tiniest bit of faith we have we reach out and say would you help us even in our unbelief that today we would encounter you and discover your life transforming grace Thank you for Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.